This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. The foundation of this conversation is essentially your book, Occult Feminism. The year is 2023. Why are we talking about this? Well, that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. The reason is because the history of feminism has been co-opted by women's studies departments. They are the total and complete gatekeepers of it. So what people think they know about the history of women's rights is mostly wrong. And we have to talk about it because it's the greatest social revolution of all time. There is no other social revolution in human history that can come close to what feminism has done in the last hundred years as far as changing people's day-to-day -day lives, the entire culture, the way you look at the world even. So, I mean, if you were alive 150 years ago, you'd have a totally different perception of everything in your life from politics to gender roles to um, power dynamics to like everything you can think of, almost every aspect of life is completely uh, affected by the feminist revolution. So people are wondering why are the birth rates so low? Why can't people get married? Why are the, why is there a gender war? You know, why are we seeing all these dating podcasts be so popular and you've got like this red pill manosphere and then you've got, you know, the people who are a rebuttal to that. And there's so much going on with all of this and, and children and how children are being raised and people don't get married anymore. And if they do get married, they don't stay married. So if you want to know why any of that became the way it is, this is where you have to look to figure that out. Okay. So take me back a little bit then. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. The book uh, starts out with like ancient cultures and goddess worship and what those cultures looked like and what looked like and what they believed in and, um, you know, people have this idea that <clears throat> the entire history of the world is just pure patriarchy, right? Like men just ruled everything with an iron fist and the women were subjugated and enslaved for all of history until 1920 when Susan B. Anthony saved the day. Or if you're in the UK, right? Um, if the Pankhursts, Emmeline Pankhurst saved the day, right? Uh, it wasn't exactly that way. There were a lot of ancient cultures, especially before Christianity, that did a lot of goddess worship and they had temple prostitution and they had female deities. They had like a feminine divine worship in most of the pagan cultures. And feminism actually is much older than people think. The, the modern feminism we know is like the political arm of a very ancient religious belief, a very ancient worldview that pagans and other religions had. Um, where femininity and feminine sexuality were worshipped as divine. Uh, and the reason, like, people think, well, what, this is strange. Why is, why does the occult and feminism go together? You know, they might see the book cover here <laughs> and think, what, what's going on here? Well, I started to dig into the history of feminism, and I wanted to write a book on it, and I thought it was going to be more about, like, who funded the suffrage movement and, the big NGOs and wealthy people who were behind women's liberation and the sexual revolution. And it does cover that. But I found this really interesting thing when I was going back and doing profiles, kind of bios of the suffragettes, that almost all of them, like a really 
abnormally high number from what you would expect were into various occult practices. They were tarot card readers, they were spirit mediums, um, they were uh, all types of different occult beliefs. Some of them kind of witchcrafty, some kind of new age, um, some of them were into theosophy or spiritualism. And I thought, okay, this is kind of a big deal. And I've never heard this. I've never heard that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and all the American suffragettes and a lot of the British suffragettes were into, you know, Crowleyanism or like theosophy or different non-Christian beliefs. That seems, it seemed like a really high number to me. So as I was digging into it, I found a professor from uh, Sweden who actually wrote his PhD thesis on how 19th century women's rights activists openly declared Lucifer to be the like symbol of women's liberation. They saw him as their liberator and they saw Christianity as this patriarchal oppressive force that had to be conquered if women were to ever be truly free, which Elizabeth Cady Stanton says verbatim in the preface to her book, The Woman's Bible. And I just thought, how can it be that I've done so much reading on this and I've read a lot of early feminist writings, you know, I've read Mary Wollstonecraft and I've read Margaret Fuller and, and all these people. And I never knew that so many of them thought this way and had this worldview and had like occult type beliefs or esoteric beliefs. I was like, I really kind of have to dig into this and figure out why this is. Uh, and the reason basically is because yes, uh, Christianity does believe in a patriarchal God ordained hierarchy where, you know, uh, the Bible says man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. So we have male headship in the church. We have male headship in the home. And um, to them, this was oppression, right? This is oppression and it has to be overcome. And this is where a lot of their worldview came from. So I had to really dig into earlier pagan beliefs, other religious beliefs, all of these occult systems that these women believed in. You have people like Alice Bailey, writing about, you know, um, kind of proto new age beliefs and things like that. And she was very influential on the United Nations. These were very powerful women who had big places in history and had anti-Christian beliefs that came out of the occult and nobody knows this. So if you could go back to Wollstonecraft, you could even go back earlier than that. Like I said, we started with, uh, like the, the pagan, ancient pagan goddess worship stuff where, um, you know, female sexuality was this totally different thing than what we think of it as today, but it's kind of coming back. In fact, if you go to TikTok and you put in the hashtag witch talk, there's a whole section of TikTok that is young, like Gen Z women and millennial women who say that they are witches and they will show you how to use crystals and do spellcraft and do different rituals with various body fluids. And to them, this is normal. And it's the reason they're so drawn to it and they like it so much is because they feel they feel like it goes along with the women's liberation stuff. They they're kind of uh, taking back the witch. Right. There's actually academics, female academics that do this. Uh, Kristen Soleil is a professor at the new school in New York. She's, I think, a second or third generation witch herself. And she teaches the history of witchcraft and she gives a speech and a talk called Taking Back the Witch where she talks about how 
um, from their perspective, right? We're talking about from the belief system of women who have a feminist mindset and, and think Christianity is oppressive, that witchcraft is like the natural polar opposite. It's very attractive to them because it, it um, says that sexual liberation for women is a powerful thing, that they can use their sexual you know, power to influence the world around them and um, get what they want, right? To manifest things for themselves. You might hear, you'll hear a lot of this language, even among um, just regular girls who are into yoga or journaling or self-improvement, you know, and they'll talk about manifesting things for themselves. And this all comes from the new age and the new age all comes from kind of a blend of Eastern esotericism, Western esotericism, theosophy, all this stuff. So you've got all these occult beliefs and any of the women who are interested in feminism naturally flock to them because they are anti-patriarchal. They are female empowering. They're about sexual empowerment. This is why you see almost every female pop star right now that you can think of. Taylor Swift, Beyonce, uh, Ariana Grande, Cardi B, the female rappers, singers, a lot of the actresses, even Giselle Bunchen, the models like Tom Brady's now ex-wife, believe in various forms of witchcraft. And they come right out on their social media and talk about it. And nobody really bats an eye. And mm. nobody really puts together why, why? Like, why are these women so interested in this? And it's because of that female sexual power liberation aspect. So when Women's Lib came along, and we really started to see it pick up steam after the Industrial Revolution, because the Industrial Revolution is kind of what made feminism possible. Prior to that, uh, you literally needed men for survival. You needed them for protection. You needed them to farm. You needed them to do things women Sorry, could do. Sorry, I don't yeah. want to interrupt your your, your flow, but I, no, I just want to I, I just want to clarify something. When you talk sure. about feminism, what are you talking about? Sure. When I talk about feminism, I'm talking about kind of a general cluster of beliefs that um, came out of the age of reason, the enlightenment, when egalitarianism became this uh, like central, it was kind of a central philosophical uh, hub of the enlightenment. This idea that all men are created equal and that by extension, women, you know, mankind, we're all equal. Um, this is when like class warfare, gender warfare, sex warfare all kind of started um, because there was this idea that we should all be equal. And when I was young, I kind of thought, you know, I don't know if that's possible because I don't have the same capabilities as, you know, my friend over here and she doesn't have the same capabilities as people. Some of us are tall. Some of us are short. We're very different. So I started thinking about like egalitarianism itself. And then feminism is, you know, just a, another version of it. It's just an offshoot of it. So the reason that feminism comes out of that is because suddenly women decided, well, we have some technological advancement now. We have factories, we could go work in them. And this is where things get a little bit sticky. Um, the people who own factories around this time, you know, we're talking late 1700s when Things become mechanized, and we changed life so much in this period. You went from most people working on farms or, um, you know, businesses, and, and you had like a serfdom system in some areas, and you had um, a particular way of life that had been going on for centuries, and all of a sudden people are moving to cities, we're industrializing, men are leaving the home to go to work, women are staying home with children. 
Um, and they wanted more cheap labor in these factories, especially in Europe. Um, and they thought the, the, the men who were the like, uh, the Gilded Age industrialists who became very wealthy from the Industrial Revolution wanted cheap labor. And they figured if we get some of the women, you know, working in the factories, we could get some really cheap, easy, low wage labor. Um, and then you had the workers' rights movement come out of that. And feminism was always associated with that. So you'll see this cluster of beliefs always going together. It'll be socialism slash, slash communism. It'll be veganism surprisingly. It'll, <laughs> I know. Uh, veganism, feminism, uh, all, all flavors of egalitarianism all kind of coming together. And so when we're talking about, when I say feminism, that's kind of what I mean is this egalitarian ethos, this idea that we're all the same, we should all be equal, and uh, what that means. So, Okay. I interrupted you. So go back to you. You were busy talking about the Industrial Revolution. Yes. So that's kind of what made feminism possible, because like I said before that, uh, women and men both had a lot of manual labor in their everyday lives just to eat, just to have clean clothes to wear, just to get along. Uh, the men were doing physical labor and then the women were doing physical labor as well, but more around the farm or the homestead. Um, most women who had employment prior to 1920 actually did a lot of farm labor, uh, but it was generally lighter than what the men were doing, right? So the Industrial Revolution comes and things start to become mechanized. Um, we have factories, uh, women can, are offered to go work in them. And so they start deciding, well, you know, if we're gonna be working and if we can make our own money, you know, where does that put us? And are we are we still going to stay home? And so there becomes this big movement that kind of comes out, especially in Europe. It came very much out of class warfare and uh, workers' rights movements, feminism did. So they started talking, and this comes also at the same time as democracy, right? Prior to this, we had kings and kingdoms, and we get the French Revolution, we get the American Revolution, and they start talking about various forms of democracy, voting, and suffrage. Now, at this time, most men did not vote. This is the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand. If we're looking at like the 1800s, only I think in England, it was like four or five percent of men were enfranchised with the vote in like 1800. Most men couldn't vote. Universal suffrage was not a thing. And I think in people's minds, they think all men always voted and only women or say uh, slaves or free slaves couldn't vote. But that's not true. Uh, most men in Europe and the United States were not voting until right around the same time that women started voting. Men only really got the vote kind of around the same time. Um, so that's one big misunderstanding is this. There's this idea that all the men could vote and they didn't want the women to vote and that the men were the ones blocking it. But one of the most important things to understand is that actually the women didn't want to vote. It was actually women at this time who were more conservative politically. Um, so there were various parties that didn't want the vote for women, even the more progressive parties who you would think would support it and did support it um, theoretically, never would vote for it and never would have a referendum on it and would never put uh, that referendum forward because they knew that women were probably gonna vote for things like prohibition. They might vote for you know conservative policies and they wanted to win, right? 
So even the political parties didn't really want women to vote, but it really wasn't a men versus women thing. It was a women versus women thing. So you had the progressive women who were very much in the minority. At the time that suffrage was passed here in the United States, we only had a couple of referendums on whether women even wanted to vote. And in those, only about 4% bothered to go out to polls to say they wanted to vote at all. There was far more membership in anti-suffrage groups among women than pro-suffrage groups. So again, really? most people, yes, most people have this conception that all the women or most of the women demanded the vote, that they wanted it, that this was a change driven by the women themselves, and it absolutely wasn't. Women did not want to be involved in politics. It was looked at as kind of a dirty business, still kind of is, right? Um, and they thought of it as kind of beneath them. And they thought um, a lot of the anti-suffragists wrote about this and they said, look, if we become yet just another voting block, another political entity, we are going to lose our moral high ground that we have now. We'll have to become partisan. We'll have to be subject to lobbying and, um, you know, the we'll just get exploited like all the other voting blocks do. And we won't have our pure moral neutrality where we're concerned with things like quality of life for children. We're concerned with, you know, um, all the things women are classically concerned with, right? Education, safety, um, parks, safe parks for women and children to play in, things like that. Uh, and they were kind of right about that, to be honest. When I go back and read anti-suffragist writing and they're talking about, you know, we think this will divide families. We think it'll break up marriages. Why would you have you know, a husband and wife voting against each other in the same home, that's going to cause issues. Um, and they said, they very rightfully also asked, okay, if women become fully enfranchised and we push them all out into the workforce and we push them into politics, who's going to be at home? Who's going to raise our children? Uh, will we have to outsource that? Will we now have to pay someone else to raise our kids? That sounded awful to them. So the vast, vast majority of women did not want the vote. And in her um, history of women's suffrage, Susan B. Anthony actually says in the first chapter, if we left women's suffrage question up to women, it would have never happened. She said women didn't want it. And she, her reason was women's lives are too good. She said they live comfortable lives now because they have a little bit of mechanization around the home. And you know it's a little bit easier being a housewife. Uh, and they're well taken care of. And they, they actually, women had a lot of rights that men didn't have at this time that they didn't want to lose. So for instance, in New York, uh, if a woman came into a marriage wealthy, and yes, women could inherit wealth at this time from their father or their mother, if they came into a marriage wealthy and they married a poor man, the man was still legally responsible to take care of the wife and child, regardless of how much money the wife had. And he had no right to her money, but she had the right to his money. A lot of people don't know this either. So um, women were very concerned about losing privilege and protection was the phrase that they used. The anti-suffragist said, we enjoy a lot of privileges and protection because of male suffrage that we don't want to lose. We don't want to have to be drafted. We don't want to have to do jury duty. We don't want to be held legally responsible for debts. And we don't want to be legally held responsible for providing for our children. That should be for men to do so that we can stay home and raise the kids, right? That was their argument. And I'm reading it, you know, in 2020 when I'm writing this book and I'm going, these are some pretty solid points. I, I tend to agree with them. Like, 
if I'm, I have five children and I homeschool, very difficult to do in this five. day and age, right? Five. Yep. So yeah. You've, and you've got a whole community. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is a hundred <laughs> years ago, if you said you had five children, nobody batted an eye. Now, if you say you have five, it's like, whoa, whoa, this lady is like, she needs to, uh, she needs to figure out what's causing this. You know, she needs to, uh, relax a little bit on the baby having, but that was very normal. Just in my grandma's generation to have five children was very normal, but now it's weird. Right. And why do you ever wonder why you ever ask yourself why we think it's weird to yes. have more than two? I do wonder why. Yeah. And it's because in order to uh, get women behind feminism and suffrage and the sexual revolution, there was a massive wave of propaganda. If you've ever heard of a guy called Edward Bernays, the father yes. of uh, marketing and propaganda, he actually helped construct some campaigns. The Rockefellers helped construct some campaigns. There were various entities that, that worked together to do this, but they pushed a very antinatalist message that, you know, um, women were just dying in childbirth all over the place. Like they made it sound like, you know, you had a 90% chance of dying in childbirth uh, and women were just having 14, 15, 16 babies. They didn't know what was causing it. They didn't know how to stop it. This is what uh, uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, wrote in one of her books that there was just this epidemic of too many babies, right? Oh, what an awful woman. Oh, she was horrible. Writing the chapter on her was the worst for me. It was like mentally and emotionally hard because I actually, I think she, well, I know for sure. And we can prove that there was a lot of things she said that were not true. She was definitely fraudulent on a lot of claims and things that she would write and a lot of her propaganda. But I mean, she just, she wrote this book where she claimed that she had gotten thousands of letters from women all over America saying they were having too many babies they were having so many babies, the babies were all starving and they were physically crippled and on death's doorstep from just giving birth over and over and they couldn't get their insatiable husbands to leave them alone and they didn't know what to do and they just were desperate for help. And there's a little thing called the Margaret Sanger Archives, uh, the Margaret Sanger Papers Project. They have everything this woman has ever done. If she blew her nose, they've got the Kleenex. If she uh, had a napkin at dinner, they've got the napkin. Okay, they've saved everything. Her grocery receipts are probably saved. They've got thousands of documents from everything Margaret Sanger ever did. So I thought if she claimed there were thousands of letters from these women, I want to read them. Like, let me find them and read them. Curiously, do you know how many of these letters survived? How many? Two. Two? Two. And no. I, I wrote an email and I asked, why, why would this be? If she, if she got thousands of letters from women all over the country saying, oh, this, uh, this pro-natalist having too many babies stuff is just destroying me. It's ruining society. It's ruining life. This reckless breeding has to stop. Certainly she would have kept more than two. What happened to them? And they said, well, uh, we think they were lost to time. And she might have sent some of the letters to the um, abortion doctors at the clinics when they got discouraged about performing that, that medical procedure, right? Uh, and I was like, that's not a good answer. So I looked at her book more closely. And I, I personally think I don't have total proof. I'm going to try to get proof someday before I die. But I think that 
she made that up because all the letters sound exactly the same. They sound like they were written by the same person. And I think this was just a giant propaganda piece. And it goes along with many other propaganda pieces from clinics that were in the UK and clinics that were in America that wanted to push birth control, that wanted to push feminism because they wanted women in the workplace. Why? Why did they want women in the workplace all of a sudden, you know, around the turn of the century, 1902, 1905, 1910? Well, the reason is twofold. One is they needed a lot of cheap labor because, like I said, the factories were expanding at such a clip and industrialization was expanding at such a clip. We're heading toward World War One. And in 1913, uh, in the United States, they passed the income tax and they also instituted the Federal Reserve. So by pushing all the women out of the home and into the workforce, you double your tax base practically overnight and you it affects the currency, it affects the uh, supply and demand of the labor force in a way that was extremely beneficial to the exact people. So. In my book, I covered the people who were at Jekyll Island passing the Federal Reserve Act and the um, Income Tax Act in 1913, which they snuck in. They snuck it in over a Christmas holiday in a very sneaky way here in the United States. Those men were the same men funding suffrage. They were the same wealthy men who were um, bailing suffragettes out of jail, um, providing you know places for suffragists to meet. They were um, funding their their publications, so any kind of newspapers or pamphlets or circulations. Um, people like Margaret Sanger, they paid to send her around the world doing speeches and, and doing political activism. So the people who funded the women's suffrage movement were the same people who instituted the income tax and wanted all this cheap labor and a much bigger income tax base. And there's another benefit to this plan which is right around this time also, we see uh, public school systems start to become mandatory. Uh, public school was not really a thing here in the United States until the late 1800s. And uh, the same people, once again, it's the same group of intellectuals and wealthy people who I name in the book, uh, who wanted public school to be uh, compulsory, mandatory. You have to go to public school now. Well, that's lovely because if mom's at work all day and dad's at work all day, the kids need somewhere to go anyway. And this provides a uniform system with which to indoctrinate children with whatever messaging the state would like them to hear. So um, our public school systems and same thing in Europe came out of the Prussian model, which was meant to be more of a military model. There's a great book on this by my friend John Kleisek. It's called School World Order. Um, and he, it's a really thick book. He really details and brings the receipts about who formed the public school system, why they formed it the way they did. And it's more of a conditioning apparatus than it is anything to do with education, especially now, but even from the beginning. Uh, they teach you your reading, writing, and arithmetic back in the day, but they also conditioned you to respond to the bell ringing. They conditioned you to pledge allegiance to the flag in the morning and the you know, uh, pay homage to the state and, uh, you know, follow the rules, sit in the chair, follow a schedule, like all the things that you would want for good factory workers and good military people, good soldiers. So all of these things kind of came together around the same time. They were pushed by the same people. And this was kind of a first great reset where uh, the 
the wealthy philanthropists of the time, the Gilded Age wealthy philanthropists, figured that they could maybe remake society in a way that they wanted. And these are the people who had these occult beliefs that believed in things like, uh, you know, uh, when you're talking about the new age or the occult, there's always like the monad. We have to return to the one. We have to erase differences. We can't have racial differences. We can't have cultural differences. We can't have gender differences. We have to make everyone the same. We have to have like this hive mind of people where everyone agrees and everyone thinks the same. And the feminists of this time loved that idea. And some of them, like Margaret Fuller, uh, who was a suffragette and uh, one of the first big feminist writers in America, she loved this because she thought, she believed, like it, from an occult standpoint, we would never transcend humanity and death until we all became one. And she actually was one of the first people who came up in the modern age with gender abolition. So she was a feminist, but she said, you know, feminism is one step in the process of just erasing sex and gender. And she saw a future where she thought that eventually technology would allow men to be women, women to be men, or for people to be non-binary. Oh, right. And she, yeah, so in like the 1840s, she's writing about uh, gender being on a spectrum and things like that. So these ideas aren't new, they're very old. It sounds like what what you're saying that the the history of women's liberation is very mm-hmm. complex and also hidden. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's very much hidden because uh, in 1970, the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation created women's studies as a discipline in universities in the United States. And uh, you might notice that that the UK and Western Europe and America and even Australia are on kind of a same timeline with this stuff. And there's a good reason for that. The people, these elites who funded and pushed these things are transnationals, they're internationalists. Uh, You know, it was like a power block of the entire West. So that's why you see the social changes all kind of unfolding relatively along the same time period in all these places around the world. Um, But yeah, that's what they, that's what they were aiming for is eventually we'll get rid of gender and we'll get rid of nations and we'll get rid of borders and and boundaries altogether. And feminism has to be kind of the first step. Um, there were a lot of socialists and communists writing about feminism at the same time. My next book coming out is going to be about women's liberation in Russia because they were actually, the Bolsheviks were actually a bit ahead of us on some things. And they had uh, some really prominent female writers that the West hasn't ever heard of because the Cold War happened right after, you know. So most of that was all cut off from the West and we've only been able to gain access to these writings in the last few years. So I've worked with um, a Russian translator and a couple of professors, I have some academics helping me now, um, to go through this and see what they did there because Russia was the first place to legalize abortion and give, give women the vote and things like that, even before a lot of the West. Now, Stalin came in and, and got rid of all of that, but there were some really important things happening in Russia and the Eastern Bloc around this time. And those people were in communication with a lot of the Western feminists. They didn't like the liberal democracy part of it, but they liked the women's lib part of it. So, and again, in the East, there was a lot of occult uh, underpinnings to their beliefs of why they wanted to liberate women, why they wanted to split up the family, why they wanted to get rid of marriage, because patriarchy 
was the main way that you would pass down intergenerational wealth. Uh, if you take away men's paternity and men no longer have a legacy to pass down, they don't want to own property. They don't want to accumulate cross-generational wealth because what would be the point? Um, you basically neuter the men and then all allegiance and all efforts go to the state. The state becomes the father. The state becomes the patriarch. And that's really what we've seen, especially in the West. If you look at the number of out-of-wedlock births, um, in 1960, it was super, super low. It was like less than 4%. And then by 2010, I think that becomes... 54% or something like that. And if you look at welfare spending and you chart it on a graph with out of wedlock births, they go up exactly in tandem like this. It's like a just a perfect following. And th that's not a coincidence. So there was a very deliberate effort to replace fathers and husbands with the state and with welfare because that's how you make the entire public reliant on government. And then you can start talking about things like UBI, right? We've been hearing people talk about UBI for several years, for like the last decade. Um, and a lot of these kind of one world government type of ideas, they're not possible if men still have autonomy and agency to build and grow families and have legacies and own land and things like that. So yeah, it's the same kind of people who are all behind this. I guess a question that will often get thrown at you is, but it sounds like you're opposing the liberation of women. Right. Right. So my argument is that feminism didn't do any of the things it promised to do. Feminism was supposed to make life safer and better for women and children. Right. Even from the suffragettes time, they were pushing that, you know, oh, men are this is more propaganda that everybody thinks is true history and it's really not i just put out a piece on my Substack with tons of statistics and data on this very subject um men were not the primary threat to women and children like the father or the husband was not but they launched this giant propaganda campaign making it seem as though all husbands are cheaters and beaters and that getting married and depending on a husband is scary it's risky. You're going to get abused because they know that you can't leave and you're dependent on them. Right. And most people believe that. And that's why their primary concern when they hear me talk is like, but what about when men are bad? You know, what about when uh, a woman gets abused? Do you want her to not be able to leave? Do you want women to not be able to defend themselves? Do you want them to not have choices? No, that's none of that is true. So if women's liberation was protective of women and children. We should have seen over the last century things like domestic abuse, child abuse, um, and all the other like related poor outcomes, things like alcoholism, uh, drug addiction, depression, things like that. We should have seen those things improve pretty drastically, right? As women became more liberated, as women got their own money and got their own bank accounts and and became independent and able to protect and defend themselves and not reliant on a man for income, we should have seen those things get better. But what we actually see is those things got worse. The data is tricky and it's taken me years of parsing and figuring it out because you can't make claims like this without really being able to defend them. So I wanted to make sure I got it right. 
But there's something in the United States called the NIS. It's the national, uh, it's like a national survey they do of all of the like welfare agencies. So child protective services, um, foster care places, women's shelters, organizations that help uh, people who've been victims of domestic violence, all of these, and they'll survey them, they'll compile all the data to assess how much abuse is going on, what kind of abuse is going on, has it gotten better, is it getting worse, all, all these different demographic data points. And we've had that since 1978 now in the United States. And what we've seen is that actually uh, a home with married biological parents is by far like it's not even close, the safest situation for both women and children. Any other living situation, whether it's uh, both biological parents, but they're not married, uh, divorced, so you've got a single parent with a boyfriend, a single parent with a girlfriend, a step-parent, whatever. Yeah, or yeah, um, LGBT situations, things like that. All other living situations have far higher rates of abuse far higher. We're talking 10, 20 times higher, depending on which thing you're looking at. So if you guys want like all the data breakdown for that, it's on rwilson.substack.com. And it's my most recent post asking if patriarchs are, are the primary problem. And it turns out when you remove husbands and fathers who are the primary people that have the most vested interest in their offspring's welfare and in the welfare of their wife, Men don't get married for no reason. They want offspring and they want a wife for reasons, right? They have reasons for wanting to invest all of their resources, time, and energy into producing a family. Those men are the least likely to abuse and destroy women and children. It's other people being brought into the picture that tend to be more abusive. And the shocking thing, the mothers are far and away more likely to abuse children than fathers, actually, under all living situations. Now, feminists will try to kind of refute me on that point, and they'll say, well, but that the reason for that is that women spend the most time with children as the caretakers, and that's why it seems higher. But again, they have a problem, because men have gotten far more custody and parenting time over the last 40 years than they ever had before. Back in the 70s, it was very rare to have a dad be the primary custodian or even have a lot of parenting time but they have, uh, that's gone up like 400%. It's gone up a lot. And in this piece, I, I talk about these statistics too. So we should have seen as men are getting more custody of children, they're becoming more single dads. We're seeing more men with either primary custody or shared custody. If men are the dangerous ones and women are only the abusers because they spend more time, then we should have seen abuse rates among dads go up as they got more time with their children and as they got more custody, and we don't. We don't see that in the data at all. So even when fathers are single fathers, they are less likely to be abusive than women. And in my piece, I posit that the reason for this is, and I'm not um, trying to demonize mothers or women, obviously I'm a woman, I'm a mother, but women are much more prone to emotional instability, mental illness. We have 26% of women in the United States are now on some kind of psych prescription drug, psychiatric prescription drug. Um, and we're really not built for the stress of trying to be parents and also have careers. Those are both full-time jobs. Women are trying to do that alone. They're trying to do it independent of a man. They're trying to do it with a 28-day hormonal cycle that has ups and downs, and they're trying to do it with just a very different 
brain biology. There's actually data in my piece about how women's brains are different. That's why we see differences in mental illness between men and women and uh, differences in temperament between men and women and stress affects men and women differently. Alcohol affects men and women differently. If men and women both drink the same per pound of body weight, it's far more damaging to women than it is to men. And we're seeing more disordered alcohol use among women than we've ever seen now. So women, ironically, after all this liberation, are not doing very well. <laughs> are you suggesting that this is all linked to feminism? Yes. Yes. And in the book, I make the case. And people that's another thing people will say, well, it can't all be just from this. How do you know? That? How could you possibly correlate that? But you can correlate it because now we have 100 years of data. So the last chapter of my book goes over all those different data points. And we see that the more women are pressured to. So, for instance, right now, what we have going on in the United States, uh, women hold the majority of all college debt. We tell women from the time they're little, you must go to college. You must have an education and a career. You have to, right? Uh, or otherwise bad things will happen and you'll be unsuccessful and you'll be a loser. You don't want to be some stay-at-home mom dependent on some man. You know, that's old-timey, uh, out of outdated stuff. And it's dangerous and only stupid women would do that, right? So all the women go to college. There's more women in university than men now. And women hold the majority of college debt. The average woman graduates college with uh, $36,000 of debt, and she's told she has to build a career and start paying off that debt before she can even think about getting married and having a family. So women are waiting to get married. The average age now, I think, in the U.S. is 31 at their first marriage, whereas 100 years ago it was 20, 21. Uh, they're waiting much longer, and then they try to have a child, and they inevitably run into a lot more problems conceiving because as you hit your 30s and beyond, that becomes harder to do for us. Men don't have the same biological clock. So a lot of women hit their 30s and they're under a tremendous amount of stress because they're saddled with debt. They're trying to build a career, but something in them does want a family for most of us still. Uh, but at the same time, then you've got childcare costs and then you're going to have to try to balance your career with uh, being a mom and then if you're a provider, where does that put you with your husband? Well, you need a guy who makes more money than you. So women are making a lot of money now, but they want a man who makes more. Well, that's getting harder and harder to find as women get uh, do better and better in corporations and careers and things like that. So there was a landmark study that came out, I think, in 2009, and it was called The Paradox of Female Happiness. And this was a huge study that went over this crazy paradox of why are women reporting less happiness as they've become more liberated and that piece caused a lot of trouble at the time people were got very upsetty spaghetti about that when it came out um, and there's been some follow-ups on it too but it's because we're telling women you have to do everything you have to compete with men and you have to be better at everything than men but you also have this innate biological drive to be a mother but you should resist it. You should resist having children because it's a trap, right? It's going to enslave you. You'll be enslaved to the patriarchy and you'll be saddled down with children. And, and then you've invested all this time in your education and career that you won't be able to use to achieve your career goals because now you've got kids. And so it kind of put women in this really crazy position. And I've gotten so many letters from young women saying things to me like, 
I'm in dental school right now, or I'm working on my degree in engineering, or I'm, you know, just out of college and I'm supposed to be starting work at this job that pays 80,000 a year. And all I want to do is quit and get married and have kids. But I can't tell anyone. My parents won't understand. My friends will think I'm crazy. You know, uh, all these people around me have an expectation that I'm going to be this career woman and all I want to do is have children. But I don't feel like people believe that's a valid thing to do with my life. What do I do? And they're writing these letters to me because they can't say it to the people around them. So I think what we've seen is women are not, uh, when you talk about women's liberation, liberated from what? Liberated from happy marriages, liberated from your family, liberated from motherhood, liberated from safety and protection and, um, you know, provision. And what we've done instead is enslave them to corporations. So if a woman like me, if I bring my husband a sandwich, right, I'm a slave. But if I go to a restaurant and make some other man a sandwich and I'm a chef at a five-star restaurant, now I'm liberated. Now I'm doing something with my life. So it's a cognitive dissonance that we force onto women from the time they're little through all the culture and the propaganda. And women want approval. We want to do well. We want to be good. And we want to get patted on the head and be told we're doing well. Who doesn't? Everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to be successful. So when women follow the, the modern prescription of success, they find themselves extremely unhappy, very stressed out and feeling like, what exactly am I winning here, you know? And they're, they're just not doing very well. That's why we see such high rates of prescription drug use, uh, psychiatric drug use, alcoholism, and we see higher rates of abuse, more instability, especially as women get older. There's like this whole generation of women now who are not gonna have children, they're not gonna get married. And what are they gonna do when they retire, you know? So the problems are just like very multi-layered, but, I posit in the book that we did not liberate women from the correct thing. So we liberated them from the main force that would protect and provide for them and, and make life good for them and allow them to be what they are, which is women, mothers, sisters, daughters. Uh, we're creators of culture. We are the people who keep the culture and pass it down to the next generation. We were the ones who took care of the young and the elderly and the sick. We did charity, we uh, built community, and now we're all working for corporations. Now we are instead just, we have a new master and the new master is consumerism, materialism, you know, careerism, all the isms. So we send all the women to university to get indoctrinated with this feminist ideology and tell them that their place is in the workplace and that motherhood is oppressive and it will destroy your body, it will destroy your life, it will make you vulnerable. And it's actually the opposite. By doing that, we make women vulnerable. So a, who's more vulnerable than a single mom with children? Yet we see 75% of women being the ones to initiate divorce. So it's just put women in this crazy conundrum that we don't have a way out of. There's a paradox here, because what you're speaking Ooh. about also requires a responsibility then for men to yes. be men. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the thing about that is I think where men got tricked, I think men got tricked with propaganda. And this kind of started when the birth control pill came out that, hey, men, you can now enjoy all of this free love 
without all of the attachment, right? You no longer have to buy the cow to get the milk, in other words. And the men thought, yeah, you know, this doesn't sound too bad. Maybe I'll go for that. It might not be so bad to have, you know, my wife making some money or my girlfriend making some money and paying for her own dinners and I can just sleep with her and I don't have to get married. This, this doesn't sound too bad. But men got equally as screwed over by feminism because now we see, um, you know, toxic masculinity. Just to be a male is to be an oppressor. Just to be a man is to be the cause of the world's problems. And uh, all that the sexual revolution did was benefit that top five or 10% of men who are now getting all the women, right? We see this in all the dating podcasts and all the red pill manosphere shows where they talk about how, do I have to be an Andrew Tate to get women? I've got to be this, like, I have a Bugatti, I've got my own plane, I've got, I'm in the top, you know, 1% of men and I'm getting all the girls. And now I have to buy Andrew Tate's course, his Hustler University, to learn how to get a date. You've got men all over the West paying people money to figure out how just to get a girl to go out with them. We have an incel problem where there's like a large, a large subset of men across the world in every every place that feminism is, Japan, probably in Africa, parts of Africa where feminism has taken hold, certainly in the West, where a large, large swath of men are never gonna get a date. They're gonna die alone. They'll never have a, a hope of getting married or even having a girlfriend. And so they think to themselves, what's the point? Why go to work? Why build wealth? Why strive for anything? I'm just going to be, women don't want me. They're just checking out. Yes, yes. So we have the men checking out and then the women. And you see this in every sitcom, right? Uh, Homer Simpson, Peter Griffin, Everybody Loves Raymond, all the popular TV shows of the last 20 or 30 years. The man is a bumbling fool who can't do anything. He just gets, he just causes trouble and chaos and problems. And he's an idiot and he can't do anything for himself. And the wife is always there going, I guess I'll clean up after you again. I don't know why I put up with you. I'll come in and save the day. You know, every movie now has like a strong, independent, single mom, nuclear physicist who's going to save us from the asteroid. Uh, women are the heroes. Girls are killing it. And men are Bobby. just silly and unserious. Yeah, the Barbie movie. I just did an analysis of the Barbie movie last night. Men are dispendable accessories that women don't need because we can run the government, we can be the boss, we can uh, have our own dream house and our own car and our own money, and we have our friends, and every night is girls' night, and we just don't care about men anymore. And so um, you saw feminists like Camille Paglia speaking up against this you know, 20 years ago. She could see like, hey, this is a problem. <laughs> this is not good. We shouldn't be just discarding men. Men are the ones who build things. Men, men still hold over 85, 90% of infrastructure jobs around the world. Men are not disposable. It is only feminist propaganda and modern technology that give people the illusion that they don't need men. I do debates with feminists all the time, especially ones that are younger than me. They really think that you just get up and you turn the light switch and the power just comes on. Magic, it's just magic. You don't need a man to build the roads or to build your car or to build the house you live in or to keep the power grid running or any of these things. They really think women can do this. Now, aside from whether or not women are capable, they don't want to. Women don't want those kind of, women don't want to do dangerous jobs. They don't want to do dirty jobs. They don't want to, they just don't want to. 
women hold the same top 20 jobs that they did 100 years ago with just one exception, which is they traded the farm labor I was talking about for HR work. Other than that, what do women do? Well, like the field of psychology, which deals with people and what makes people tick is highly saturated with women. I think over 80% of psychology degrees are earned by women now. They are preschool teachers, daycare workers, secretaries, cooks, retail workers, uh, they're bookkeepers, they're secretaries, they are administrative assistants. For the most part, most women are gonna be doing these jobs. So you're trading a family to be like a retail manager or you're trading your family to go work in a cubicle that, I mean, that's what we got out of this. And what we were sold was this idea that women will be the bosses. We're all just going to be like sex in the city, right? We're going to get up every morning and have champagne brunch with our girlfriends in our Manolo Blahnik shoes. And then we're going to fly to Paris and close the business deal and live this like luxurious jet set life. That's not the reality for 95% of women. Most women are going to work a mid-level job that they don't really love. And they're gonna try to be all things all at the same time. They're gonna try to be mom and dad. They're gonna try to be the career boss woman and they're gonna try to be a mom and they're gonna fail and they're gonna feel like they're failing. They're gonna feel like, where did I go wrong? Why can't I do this? And it's because nobody can do it. We've sold women this like giant bag of goods that never existed, that was an illusion. And so now we have all this breakdown of society, all this dysfunction. We have more women in the workforce than men in a lot of places. And the birth rate is in the toilet in almost, I think, all but two countries now. But don't worry, the Gates Foundation is on their way there. They're going to take care of that in those places too. Uh, like Japan is having total collapse with their birth rate. They have nobody to care for the elderly. So they've had to institute euthanasia. Same thing in Canada. We have massive older population, not enough young people to take care of people. So they've started incentivizing euthanasia. And abortion. Uh, we have a yeah, we have a culture of death now instead of a culture of life. So we've got abortion and euthanasia. We've got careerism. We're telling everybody to get into debt and work for the internationalist corporations and to give up family and community for that. And during the pandemic, we saw all these people atomized, alone. A lot of people were locked down completely alone and didn't have a family. Uh, it's Things are really a mess. And we. Th my main point to people is just, we were promised all this dream, right? We were promised this thing. We're going to liberate the women. Women are going to have it all and it's going to be so great. And that's not what it's produced at all. It's made life much more dangerous and much harder and much more depressing for the majority of women and for men and for kids. Like for me, it's the kids, the way that children are raised now in the homes that they grow up in. It's no wonder that there's so much mental illness and confusion. What you're suggesting then is that feminism has destroyed economic stability for women. It's destroyed the mm -hmm. family. Um, yeah. It's also destroyed men's place in society. Mm -hmm. um, and now women are wanting to become men. Yes. And then when they do, they're extremely unhappy. So I don't know if you saw this. There was a viral video of a woman who actually uh, physically transitioned. She, you know, took the hormones and all the things you do if you want to uh, swap genders or swap sexes or whatever, however you want to phrase it. 
And this video of her went viral because here she is with a, a full beard, looks mostly male. She, there's still parts of her face you could tell she was a woman, but she's crying. She's filming herself crying and saying, it's so hard to be a man. Nobody cares about men. Not even men care about men. Men are so disposable. Uh, we're invisible. Nobody opens doors for me. Nobody stops to help me. Like it's hard and it's lonely to be a man. And she felt like, what have I done? You know? So women cannot understand men's inherent experience in the world, no matter how many, uh, pink and blue flags you want to throw at it or anything. Uh, men have always been the ones that build and keep society going. And I, I personally just really appreciate that. The, the thing I'm talking to you on right now wouldn't exist if men didn't build it. I'm sorry if that offends people, but men are the, still the ones that build things, create the modern world we live in, and they are the protectors and the providers. Can men be bad? Yes, but so can women. And feminism has told this version of the story where only men are violent. Have you ever heard people say things like, if women ruled the world, there'd be no more war? Well, no, that's not true. We have tons of data showing that women can be every bit as violent and every bit as bad as men when they're bad. Not only that, because women are smaller and we can't use inherent physical force, we're more likely to use force multipliers. So when you look at domestic violence statistics, women are more likely to use weapons when they are the abuser and they do more damage because they can't just you know choke you or punch you. They got to get a weapon of some kind or a blunt object of some kind. And yeah, we just don't see this in the data. We've got a hundred years of data to look at that does not show that it's a kinder, gentler world when women are in charge of everything or that women don't abuse, but men do, that men are the ones who somehow just have this innate uh, propensity to abuse and be violent. We don't see that at all. The more we've tried egalitarianism, the more we see that men, women can be every bit as bad when they're bad. There's good women, there's bad women, there's good men, there's bad men. But, but what we tried to do was say, no, men are the cause of the problems. There wouldn't be this violence. There wouldn't be um, you know, all these ugly things in the world if women just ran it. And it turns out that's not true at all. We just don't have any data to support that. Rachel, what is it that you would like to see? I, my primary thing that I would like to see, which I think will really fix most of these problems, uh, when we look at the experience of children growing up since feminism and no-fault divorce and the sexual revolution, the average child first views pornography on their phone at age 11 now. Uh, we see a majority of children now growing up without their biological father in the home, which statistically puts them at high risk for every possible bad outcome. Uh, addiction, incarceration, mental illness, uh, physical medical problems, poor health, poor mental health. Every possible risk is higher if you grow up without your biological dad in the home with you. Um, and then, you know, public schools are now the first place that most children experience violence. It's not the Catholic Church. <laughs> it's Public schools are worse. I'm not saying there's not institutional problems with some churches. There are, but public schools are by far the worst. Uh, and what I'd like to see is a return to something that's more of a pro-family message of get married, keep your marriage together. And that's the purpose for having children. We need stable, 
non-chaotic environments for children to grow up and where they're safe because broken children grow up to be broken adults. Um, and that's where I think so much of the pain and problems that we're seeing in modern society comes from. I think if you could convince the genders, the sexes that they need each other and that there's proper roles for both. Now, I'm not saying women can't ever have a job or can't do anything. I have a book, right? I'm talking to you right now. But what I did was in my youth, I focused on having my children and raising them while that window was open to me. And that's what I encourage women to do. There's lots of life left to be lived after you've raised your family. And you can be doing things part-time while you have kids, but motherhood's a full-time job and children need their fathers and women need their husbands. So you can do a lot of things. You can have a lot of choices. You can Women can do amazing things, but you don't have to throw away the idea of having a stable family in order to have those things. You don't have to see men as the enemy. They're not. Men are not the primary danger to you. Um, finding a good man and marrying him means you're going to have more stability financially, psychologically, and emotionally. Your children are going to have more stability. You're going to have a better life, but you have to get this feminist stuff out of your head. You got to stop looking at your husband like he's the problem. So really, I have like a pro-family, pro-natalist message of let's venerate motherhood and make it an acceptable answer again. When we ask a five-year-old girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? If she says, I want to be a mom, we go, awesome. That's great. That's a great thing to choose to do with your life. And instead, right now, what we do is, no, 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 that's not a job. That's not a, what do you want to do with your life, right? So that's really what I'm trying to do. I encourage homeschooling. I encourage marriage. I encourage having your children young in your fertile years and then enjoying that second half of your life to do all of the other things you wanted to do. And you can be slowly working towards those things you know, as a part-time, but make motherhood your focus while you're young and you have kids. So that's what I'd like to see. Do you walk the talk? I think I do. Um, I, you know, I had my first daughter when I was 20. I've had five children. I do homeschool them. Um, wow. When I had my, yeah, when I had my first baby, I just didn't like the job I thought I cared about just didn't seem important anymore. And I was shocked that when I said this out loud, Everyone around me acted like, no, 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 no. You have to go back to work. And I was like, what? but what if we can manage the bills? Like if we can downsize, if we can, uh, you know, make it afford. And it is tough. It's harder for it to be affordable because the wages for men are much lower because so many women are working. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. But we'd have a family wage again if more moms stayed home. But because most moms work, we don't. We have an individual wage, which means most families feel like both parents have to work. I've done a couple shows on how you can make it work. It's definitely doable, but it does take some sacrifice. So that's what we decided to do. We decided to sacrifice, you know, a lot of like, we drove just cash cars for the longest time, uh, bought food in bulk, had a garden, had chickens, moved out to the country so that we could afford to have a family life and have me be home raising the kids. I didn't want to look back on my life and feel like that was the thing I failed at. I thought I can die in good conscience knowing I failed at, at a career or other things, but I don't ever want to look back and see that I failed as being a mom. I want to give that everything I can give it. I want to do my best job at that job because it's the most important and it has the biggest ripple effect on society and the future. 
how I raise my kids, how each woman raises her children, that's the most impact you'll ever have. Nobody cares at your job when you die, but your family will. Sure, that is actually quite profound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit, I mean, these are really heavy topics and it's a big deal. And that's why, you know, as my kids started to get older, the oldest three are adults now and they're, they're moved out. And I just have the two young uh, preteen and a teenager at home. And two years ago, I was like, oh man, I'm like, I'm nearing the end, right? I'm going to have an empty nest soon. I got to start thinking about like, okay, I definitely want to be a grandma. But besides that, like, what do I want to do? Is there something else I want to do? And my husband was actually the one who was like, you know, you're really good on this feminism stuff and you should probably do a book or something like that. And I had friends that suggested it. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a shot. And to my surprise, it's been wildly more successful than I ever dreamed. I didn't have an editor. I didn't have a proofreader. I just wrote this thing on my computer and put it out there. And it's been incredibly successful, very much to my surprise. I'm really thankful because I would pray all the time and just say, I just want to help moms. I just want to help kids. So if I can get this message out there and make some mom feel okay about her choice to stay home with her kids, that's really all I'm after. If I can keep some marriages together so that children grow up with an intact family and, and people aren't divorcing all the time, if I can have just a tiny effect, that would be great. And, and to my surprise, it's been far more successful than I ever thought. So I feel like, yeah, I, I accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish by being a mom, homeschooling, raising happy, healthy kids. Um, have a fantastic marriage. My husband's my best friend in the whole world. Um, we get along famously and we've had 16 years together. That's been amazing. So yeah, I mean, it's not like I didn't make a ton of mistakes when I was young. I sure did. And that's a, a large part of why I started thinking about these things. So if you have screwed up a lot of stuff, there's definitely hope you can turn it around because <laughs> I made a lot of mistakes in my youth. But uh, I'm very happy that the family I didn't have growing up because my parents divorced and it was really tough on me and my sister. I was able to give my kids the stable home life that I always wanted. And I, I will feel happy with that just as my primary accomplishment in life. Not what it is that you would like to see, but what is it that you see happening in the coming years? Well, I had professor Edward Dutton on my show and he was talking about like kind of the evolutionary biology history of how feminism comes and goes in waves. And we tend to see feminism and goddess worship and witchcraft and things like this pop up uh, when civilizations are in decline. Uh, that's when we tend to see like women coming to the forefront and saying, no, I think I can do this better. I'm going to try to run things. Um, and then you usually see a collapse. And that's because it kind of goes against the natural order and the hierarchy. Uh, people can debate me on that if they want to, but I think what's going to happen is feminism is already starting to implode on itself. We see in the West, uh, 50% of women of childbearing age over the next seven years will not marry and will never have a child. Half of women, you guys, that's a potentially species ending thing. It can't be overstated. Never in the history of the world have we seen a situation where 50% of fertile women voluntarily choose not to have children. The birth rate is so low in so many places that it's actually the thing that's contributing to and helping to drive um, 
people having labor shortages, uh, the supply chain problems that we're seeing, uh, it's kind of probably gonna end up taking care of itself. But what I'm hoping is to avoid some kind of giant collapse. I don't wanna see a giant collapse and then a big, a great reset, you know what I mean? So uh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that people start to see that this doesn't work that 100 years of this hasn't turned out so great. We're not doing as well as we thought. Uh, things are not just overall better because women can, you know, have an OnlyFans, right? Maybe there's more to <laughs> maybe there's more to life than letting women have an OnlyFans or be a boss. Uh, and maybe we'll see a sense of community and and family come back together. But if not, I think we'll end up with that. But we'll just learn it the hard way through a really hard collapse and then a reset where we're gonna have to come back to reality and men are gonna men are gonna have to rise up and put things back together because it won't be the women. So like if there's a hurricane or a natural disaster, there's no feminists. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> when, when, when like the building is collapsing, suddenly no one's a feminist anymore. So I think if things get bad enough, feminism will kind of die off at least temporarily. But these, like I said at the beginning, these ideas are so old we're always going to see them kind of pop back up. And I think it's mm. because we, it's the same spirit behind it. It's the same. If you're not a religious person, you can think of it as the same like ideology, but I think of it literally as spiritual warfare where it's the same entities, the same demonic entities behind these problems that crop up over and over again throughout the ages in humanity. So I hope it doesn't turn out bad, but it might, it, we might, have to suffer a collapse before we get things back together. I'm just hoping to avert that. Do you see feminism being correlated to depopulation? Oh, yes, absolutely. I have a whole chapter in the book about that, about Malthusianism and um, the overpopulation scare. There was a book in the 70s by Paul Ehrlich called The um, Population Bomb. Turned out to be completely wrong. It's been totally debunked. Uh, overpopulation is another great myth. And if you ask the average person on the street, are there too many people on planet Earth? The majority of them will tell you, yeah, there's too many people and the people are destroying the planet and we just got to get the population down. We got to get these numbers down, like Bill Gates would say. Uh, and that's not true. We're actually starting to see an implosion uh, and population decline. And you can't have exponential, maybe you can't have exponential growth forever, but I don't think we've reached that zenith point where humans are the problem. And now we're seeing a collapse that's happening so quickly, it's going to cause serious problems, like food shortages, supply chain problems. It could, aside from people not being born, we could see a lot of people die as a result of not being able to keep infrastructure going, not being able to keep the logistics of the food supply going, things like that. So I don't think it's good. <laughs> How can I follow or keep up with you? Sure. Um, if you want to find my book, Occult Feminism, The Secret History of Women's Liberation, it is on Amazon. Uh, there's an audiobook, a Kindle version, and then there's paperback and hardcover. There's also a Spanish version that a lot of people don't know about. So for Spanish-speaking people, there is a Spanish translation that's also on Amazon. If you want to read some of my articles, maybe you don't want to do a whole book, you can find a lot of my other writing about this sort of stuff at my Substack. That's rwilson.substack.com. I do have a YouTube channel. It's just Rachel Wilson. And 
uh, Twitter. I'm always getting myself in trouble on Twitter. So if you want to see me um, making feminists mad and getting myself in trouble, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Rach, my first name, R-A-C-H, the number four, patriarchy. So Rach for patriarchy on Twitter. Rachel Wilson, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com 